Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello, uh, and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect start. Yeah. um, uh, First of all, I I do want to say that we, this, this, this discussion will be followed by a somewhat, you know, by an interview about Medicare for all the things that you, you guys came here. We have such a good guest talking about, um, she's a socialist that was in high school, uh, right next to the World Trade Center, mm. and was denied medical care. And she is like really trying to change the narrative around, like you know, help for disaster victims. Like the the, the best way to actually do that is is Medicare for all. And she's so cool, and she makes like a really compelling argument. She's like, I don't know if you guys are going to talk about 9-11. And I didn't know how to tell her, like, well, I'm around comedians and they talk about 9-11 all the time. All the time. But, but I don't think that. <laughs> but not in, like, a, a productive way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, you know, um, my ex-boyfriend used to like to have a 9-11 date night. I left that out. But yeah. anyway, this, was, she's, this is, was a good interview. But I do have to say that it has been... It's been fun to to see like the the like supreme dumbass takes come back on Twitter like especially like uh you know cuz I feel like in like a lot of liberals are you know they're not mad about Trump anymore so they're just they're it's like just going off about various topics and the recent one I know you haven't been online so the the, the past week has been like a real fucking intense debate about a uh, polyamory people are going off they're getting really mad and i would like to i, I would like to 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 read you uh some of these some of these okay so here we have wait can wait can, can i just say that if we've reached the polyamory debate part of the discourse i totally i totally agree with you um here's another thing that i think is unfair that i want to say to you specifically um people keep comparing polyvangelicals to vegans and i personally I think it's completely unfair. I have known a few vegan evangelists in my lifetime, but I think advocating for something that will, you know, remove uh, tons of carbon from the atmosphere and save animals, that to me seems like, okay, if people want to evangelize that about it, I totally respect it. I'm not a vegan, I, but I, I, there's no denying yeah. that a plant-based diet, if everyone adopted it, would be really helpful. Um, where, and I feel like, hey, let's not, you know, release all this methane into the atmosphere. It's just like a much more like evangelizing cause than like suck my dick, you know? Like- <laughs> oh, my God, Kate, we are, are I can tell we people are already typing their little fingers. I know. Uh, I know. I just this is the thing is, is it's like, you know, be the shock jock you wish to see in the world. Right. Like- <laughs> I mean, I truly I made I made the most the most outsized responses I've ever gotten to tweets have been like very innocuous jokes about polyamory and poly. I'm not even against polyamory. I'm currently, I'm I'm currently in some kind of open relationship. I'm not really sort of, I don't know. It's like undefined, but it seems like, I mean, 
I'm, I'm dating someone. We both have a, it's been going on for a minute and we both just seem to have a, an understanding and a support for each other and dating other people. It's starting to feel a little relationship like, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just saying I'm not totally against it. Uh, this is with a, a woman though. And maybe that makes a difference for me because mm-hmm. it's not, it's just a totally different dynamic of then like some guy being a fucking sex pest, but to get you to fuck a third guy. <laughs> You know, it's like, I don't care if you're trying to get me to fuck you or if you're trying to, like, get me to, like, fuck some other dude or, you know, whatever. And just, I obviously understand that, like, most of our listeners are people who are, uh, you know, probably pretty, like, sexually liberated folks. And I am not. A, and I don't get that. I, and I, I don't I don't stand with my, you. I am not sexually liberated. My beef is with the evangelism. I think any time you're, like, trying yeah. to get someone to, like, you're like, this is how I like to fuck, and everyone needs to fuck this way, or they're less enlightened than me. I don't like slut shaming. I don't like prude shaming. I don't like homophobia. I don't, you know, like, it's fine to make fun of straight people a little bit, like, but, you know, I'm just like, I'm against evangelism. So that said, um, <laughs> this is, this is, I think, the take of takes. Uh, Here's a tweet. If you can't do polyamorous or open relationships specifically because you think you'd be too jealous, you probably don't have any business in a monogamous relationship either, to be honest. No. (laughs) It's like, look, okay, obviously what's going on here, obviously what's going on here with this take is this person probably mad at someone very specific and, and taking it online and making, like, a grand philosophical proclamation about it. And I understand, because I honestly, I make a living that way, so. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's so much, that's so much of Twitter, is people making these sweeping pronouncements. Yeah. I'm like, no, you're, you're just mad at one guy or one lady. Oh, no, I, I literally do that. I mean, I do that all yeah. the time. That's, like, my whole thing. Like, whenever someone dates me that is, like, shitty... I'm like, okay, like, if I was honestly, like, a kind of a shitty guy, I wouldn't date a female comedian who was extremely good at making fun of shitty guys. I wouldn't. (laughs) That's what we call a gambling man, you know? That's a gambling man. That's a man who maybe has a humiliation, maybe has a bit of a humiliation fetish, but. It sucks because you can't even get revenge because you're like, oh, my God, this motherfucker Mm -hmm. likes it. I don't know, man. But the thing is, is, like, I feel like that's the thing when you want to subtweet. Which is that you have to be like, you can't, you have to understand why, like where your, um, your specific experience is actually not universal. And I, I'm mm-hmm. actually really bad at that. Like sometimes I'll log on and be like, <laughs> sucks when men tweet about cum for three weeks in a row. And people are like, that's not a thing, <laughs> that's not a thing at all. <laughs> that's, that's a your life thing. Uh, yeah, that's very funny. Um, but okay, so then Rachel McCartney tweeted oh my god she's getting owned we it's because she tweeted um she tweeted uh polyamorous people love board games because it combines their two favorite things rules and wasting time you know honestly (laughs) honestly i will tell you what people got very mad about this she's one of the best in the game she likes to stick her hand in the fucking beehive right yeah she you know I have spent some time even on like the polyamory subreddit and 
there is like discussion of board games on there. It is not like a, this is a stereotype <laughs> with definitive truth to it. You know, like every uh, fucking last poly dude that I was arguing with, I make fun of it. And, he, you know, board games or whatever. And he'd be like, nah. and I'd be like, do you like board games? He's like, I literally love them. And I'm like, see, there we go. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I don't know. I just am like, I'm just of the vibe that, like, people just got to let each other fuck how we want to fuck. And I also think... Here's the spicy take. I understand that there's going to be some disagreement with this. I also think that, like, no one's individual sex life has any impact on politics at all. Like, I'm a socialist because I believe that uh, history is the history of class struggle. And I don't Mm. think that me having a threesome or whatever, well, it may be fun. Well, it may be something that I'm interested in. I don't think it, like, moves the world forward or brings about justice in any meaningful way that I care about. And I think as someone who lived in the Bay Area for a really long time, I'm particularly annoyed by it because it's all these people who are like, I in some cases have very bad politics, you know, either libertarian or like center left, like very just rich Nancy Pelosi supporter, fucking working for big tech or whatever. You know, then these people are like, oh, I'm a radical because I went to a sex party. It's like, it's fun that you went to a sex party. It's cool. I like sex parties, but this does not make you a radical. Like what is, you know, I don't know. So I, that, that attitude annoys the fuck out of me enough that you know, it's like what am, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? Because what do I, you know, come on here? Oh, you, you, you being a radical also involves you getting to come as much as you want. Wow, I power to the people. Um, <laughs> like fuck off. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just get, I get really, I get sick of this because I think that as a bisexual woman, I definitely see the worst of these characters. I was thinking about like just because a lot of people are like, oh, bisexual, you know, like kind of creepy guys or whatever like i would love dating a bi woman because being bisexual means non-monogamy and like for the only part that i think is creepy is not non-monogamy the part that i think is creepy is the pressure and the assumption mm-hmm. right yeah fuck whoever you want but i, fuck whoever you I want. think that like people who make the, the assumption that it's like a one for one being like a bisexual woman to like being like non-monogamous like that's it's not it's just not the same thing like that's two sets of questions that you gotta ask you know right and i also do think that like particularly with the original tweet that you referenced it's so clearly a projection and that is the thing that i uh i have i have trouble with any sort of uh evangelism uh in terms of of our own individual choices particularly sexual choices if you were so comfortable with it and you thought it was so right I don't think that you would feel the need to justify it to yourself and others so often. See, Uh, I I will disagree with you on there because, like, I mean, I understand, like, the evangelistic impulse, you know, if you're like, this is, you know, this is right and, like, I found my thing and, like, you can, you too can be happy if you do this thing, you know. And I have been evangelical about various things in my life, uh, vegetarianism, communism, you know, like, it's fucking feminism, all kinds of things, most of which I believe in and still do, you know, but it's, like, not... I'm, I mean, I'm vegan, and if people ask me about it, I have been for seven years, and a lot of people in my life don't even know it. I, I'm not a proselytizing vegan, uh, but certainly if people ask me about it, 
I'll, t- I'll talk your ear off about it, but I, uh, it's definitely more often than not, people are like, I had no idea you're, you're vegan, which I think is a compliment. I think, I do think that people, the comparison between poly folks and vegans is that I think, uh, poly folks have a certain posture that people associate with vegans, <laughs> but it's actually very specific to them at this point. I, I really, I really want to say though that I do like I really do think that this is like a limited amount of poly people and that I like from what I know it's no, a, a vocal minority yeah, from what maybe. I know of like poly people which I know many I know many 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 from living in Brooklyn in the Bay Area that it is like they are also annoyed with the people who are really pressury about it because they're like okay you're making like you're you know we're just living our life in a way that works for us and then you're out here making everyone think that we're annoying and it's like i mean it's like i get i guess i get that impulse you know like when people think that like feminism is you know uh fucking you know i don't know i mean like i'm just trying i'm I'm, like debating between like the most annoying example of like feminism online or whatever like you know feminism is in some way like being like oh if you don't support hillary clinton or elizabeth warren like you're not a feminist i'm like shut up like i hate that you tarnished feminism with this like stupid idea you know yeah i i i can see that in terms of i do feel very defensive of feminism because i think it's been uh yeah, I think people people who think of it just as uh, Alyssa Milano feminism, uh, and that makes me really sad because it's that's not what it's about. I totally agree with you. I mean, of course I do, but, you know, it, it is just like, oh, man, the internet is so annoying. It's a fucking take machine. Uh, it's, you know, love to, I, I just, you know, what am I on there to do? I have asked myself, like, why am I even going online at this point? I have watched <laughs> at least three people in my life legal like become like like clinically insane due to this <laughs> like undeniably like not okay anymore and i'm still like you know i'm still fucking around we still we still keep going we still keep logging on maybe, and we're brave maybe i'm the gambling man you know i think you are the gambling man <laughs> well okay and on that note <laughs> um, i'm so excited about this interview uh i really 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 think that you're going to enjoy it And we will see you later this week. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Welcome back to Reply, guys. I am so excited about our guest this week. Her name is Lila Nordstrom, and she has a book coming out very soon on August 24th called Some Kids Left Behind. And, well, you know, this is kind of a a hard thing to explain, so I'm going to let you explain it, Lila. What... Tell us about your book. Sure. So the book is, I think at first glance, appears like it's a story about 9-11. And it is coming out, you know, time to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I am a 9-11 survivor. um, But I'm also a longtime advocate on the issue of 9-11 healthcare. And so the book is in part the story of how, you know, one particular part of the 9-11 community, the the people who were students downtown after um, the attacks on the World Trade Center, how their health was impacted, but then also how we participated in the long, very drawn out process to get federal legislation passed to protect our health. Yeah, I mean, this issue has obviously become intensely politicized. And usually when you hear people talking about 
9-11, anything, it's talking to people who often have a pretty, you know, racist <laughs> intention. Um, it, you know, but, so, but for you, you're coming at, like, your advocacy from the perspective of, like, hey, this is one more reason that we need universal health care. Uh, what has it been like for you to, like, participate in this discussion from what is, you know, a pretty, like, unusual <laughs> angle compared to what's going on? It's funny because I think in some ways this is something that more Americans can relate to than they realize. I think when we talk about 9-11, we're almost always hearing about first responders. We're almost always hearing about stories of, like, macho men rushing into buildings and, like, pulling people out of rubble and, you know, things like that. And because of that, the context of the discussion around 9-11 healthcare is almost always framed in terms of them being heroes who deserve it because of the sacrifice they made for us. But there were about 300 to 400,000 people in lower Manhattan after 9-11 who went back down there during the cleanup based on the same misinformation that the first responders were sent back down in, you know, told that the air was safe when it wasn't, told that they could clean up their apartments and offices when they couldn't, told that their schools had been cleaned, like in my case, when they hadn't. Um, and those people are almost never in the discussion because it's awkward to talk about what they did to, quote unquote, deserve protection from the federal government. Um, I think that the fact that we're constantly asking disaster victims to frame their need in terms of what they deserve as opposed to in terms of what we all inherently deserve is incredibly frustrating. It's why we're so often left out of this story. It's why the fact that 19,000 public school students got sent into lower Manhattan based on the same faulty information that responders, you know, were told they didn't need respirators um, for, you know, it's why that's not part of the national conversation around 9-11 because it's, it's awkward. It's awkward to talk about. But I think the one thing that you know, I would I would contend that almost all Americans are part of a disaster population at the moment. You know, post COVID, I think we all understand that disaster relief has broader implications than just like who rushes into a specific situation to save people in the moment, yeah. that there are long term consequences to disasters. And that the one thing that we all need to protect us from those long term consequences is healthcare. And it's very complicated yeah. to talk about it on this issue in particular because the imagery that you see around the 9-11 healthcare um, conversation is very much this like, you know, kind of like middle-aged white men taking down Washington, maybe with Jon Stewart in tow. But you don't see images of women. You don't see images of young people. We were, you know, sort of purposely left out of a lot of the imagery so that Americans would think that the people who deserved it were getting the care and that, you know, so that so that people would understand what the spending was for. But I mean, the the, the best way to protect yourself from being a disaster victim, from having long term consequence, health consequences as a result of a disaster is to have health care already when the disaster starts. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of what you're saying in some ways is making me think about like what I, I think, unfortunately, we have coming up here, yeah. uh, which is a, a really long battle over the like potentially, you know, uh, like protracted consequences of COVID. Like we don't have any fucking idea what like long term COVID no. does to people <laughs> at this point. And it might be really bad. Um, you know, I mean, who, who knows, right? But like, this is, you know, obviously, we're gonna have like private insurance companies, um, you're really trying to, you know, deny people care for things that they may need. But at the same time, we're gonna have a huge fucking population of people who do need healthcare for the long term consequences of COVID. And, you know, like the, 
the vaccine is free. The, the, the testing has been free and there have been aspects of this that are like the closest thing to, to socialized right. medicine. And people love that them. A lot of people have people seen People love getting love a free it. vaccine. <laughs> right. But then, you know, uh, what happens now, you know, and, um, you know, when the this crisis first uh, came on the scene, you know, when it was truly a novel coronavirus and not a fucking has been. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I definitely remember thinking, oh, well, people will have to support Medicare for all now. But, you know, I mean, it's just it hasn't really been what's what's happening. I It's not. uh it's not on the table. In well, a it's like we have Stockholm right syndrome a little bit because I'm often shocked by the number of 9-11 survivors that feel uncomfortable about the idea that they deserve care. I think, you know, it's been it's really interesting the way that we, you know, th- the way that we even frame the broadest possible discussion about healthcare as being something that you work for, that you deserve, that's like a special asset, means that a lot of the times people who don't see themselves reflected in disaster stories don't even think they deserve the help that they obviously deserve. I mean, we were all misled about, you know, we were misled about masks early on. We were told they didn't work at the beginning of the crisis. And that may have been the result of people not knowing things yet. But that doesn't mean that government policy didn't have an impact on our health. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel like, you know, government policy could could protect our health. <laughs> it's it's interesting how much people feel the need to deserve health care here specifically. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, it's like, uh, what if you just deserve it because you're a person? Right, what if just living in society makes you deserve it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I couldn't agree more. I definitely believe that every single person deserves healthcare. Um, You've been involved in um, fighting for, you know, healthcare, particularly for 9-11 survivors for a long time, but also you know, more broadly. And I was wondering, like, what, you know, what lessons have you taken away about, like, effective advocacy? I think, I mean, the first lesson that I think I learned that was a really harsh awakening for me was how much of advocacy work is theater. I think there's this sense that, like, you have to be a serious person to do advocacy work. And because you have to be a serious person, you have to be, you know, a kind of organized person. You have to be the kind of person who can run a nonprofit really effectively. And what you actually need to be to be a good advocate is to be a good storyteller. You know, there are certain assets that um, that resources offer to advocacy. So, for example, you know, data costs money. Data is not a given to a lot of disaster communities. Our disaster community after 9-11 did not have data. Fire, you know, first responders had data. Firemen had data because they had the FDNY. But kids did not have data. So when we went in and started saying, hey, I think maybe we deserve some kind of health protections from this experience, we can extrapolate that if, you know, if the people who were down there during the recovery efforts with us are getting sick, then we're also potentially going to get sick. Um, I think... The the thing that I didn't know at the time was how often I would be asked for data that no one thought to get when I was a kid and could not have been in a position to get data. And so I think that I if I had known earlier that the, the most important criteria was just about storytelling, that it was about telling an effective story. And that's why human interest stories break through um, as the first you know, when you think about how community health issues are often represented in the press, they're rarely represented by numbers because communities who don't have, you know, resources who are or who are not prioritized by resources don't have data because data 
and money and agency all kind of go together. And so, you know, I think the first thing is to not not let your lack of data stop you from telling the story that you need to tell to get your community help. Um, and then also, you know, there were some there were some rude awakenings to being often the only woman, definitely the only young woman on the Hill with the advocacy um, groups that I would go down with for 9-11 health stuff. I, I often, I, I would set up a system where like, I would say something in a meeting and then I would ask first responders to like, repeat it so that because oftentimes I felt like staffers and members of Congress were like not literally not listening to me, like not hearing me speak. Um, and so there were frustrating ways that I had to work around what feels often like um, like a just vacuum for women's voices where it just seems like, you're, you know, your voice goes into nothing. But I um, I I kind of in in sort of marking those lessons, in seeing those moments for as frustrating as they were, I kind of had to figure out, okay, like, who am I here with and who will they listen to? And as part of the theater of telling this story, how, how do we make this story impactful to the audience that we're trying to have, you know, that we're trying to have hear this story? And in different offices, that meant different things. So, you know, when we were going to Republican offices, it meant that I had to bring a man with me to tell the story, which is incredibly annoying to report, but also helped me understand how to be more effective in those meetings in, in offices that were with, you know, that where we were meeting with parents, um, there, there was much more likelihood that they would respond to a story about children. So I didn't, you know, I, I leaned on my personal experience as opposed to leaning on the experience of the entire community. Um, but I think the, the thing that was most valuable to me as it, as this sort of experience carried on over the years was that being a good storyteller is what being a good advocate is that, that if you are a good writer or if you are, I don't know, if you're a stand-up, if you're somebody who like can communicate with people, then like that actually is a really effective advocacy tool that I think oftentimes is not properly respected in political circles. I okay, I have really complex feelings about <laughs> what you just said. Because I, I'm sure. I have also because so, you know, I also like have I've I've put some very personal stuff out into the world in in uh in terms of like kind of getting you know just like helping people understand like how bad the situation is like for people who don't yeah. have health care I lost someone really close to me and you know I connected with a lot of other people who are you know have been like longtime advocates for Medicare for all and stuff I mean people who's children have died um you know people who you know have uh, not ha had to have all their teeth removed um you know like i mean just you know the situations of people like not being able to treat like serious painful illnesses and there's a lot of these stories yeah. and it's, it's there's a tremendous <clears throat> cost i think to the people who yes. continue to tell them and you know it um <laughs> there there definitely is some kind of thing that I wonder like okay well like how how many stories like do people need you know to understand that like you know a just society involves one that we all have health care and, and there's I don't want to be cynic whatsoever I still think it's really important and I'm still you know planning on keeping going but there is honestly part of me that like privately wonders like if you know if if people are if if the stories do 
do actually change things. I would I would add for context that I think that the um, where you're telling the story and who you're telling the story to is really key. And also your ability to tell the story is its own sort of skill, because I think, you know, not everyone who went through what me and my classmates went through after 9-11 was going to be able to tell this story because it's a, it's a traumatic story. And I kind of noted early on that, like, I was the person who, for some reason, in in search of political change, was able to tell it. But I can't tell it. Pri- I don't talk about 9-11 with my friends. Like, I don't I'm not able to tell that story privately. I I'm able to tell it publicly because I'm advocating for something in the process of it. I think more what I mean, though, by about sort of like embracing your ability to tell a story is that I think there is often a sense that. Um, disaster survivors in a lot of different communities are given that their individual story is not meaningful, that it's not, it, it doesn't make them deserving of help. That, you know, that's something that the 9-11 survivor community saw reflected in media coverage for years that, you know, the, the very first story that was written about Stye Health, the organization that I started, had a member of Congress sort of implying or uh, saying, you know, anyone who needs help better uh, better ask for it now because it's, you know, because implying that, um, that it was just like greedy people that were like coming out of the woodwork that were, you know, that, that were looking for help. And I think more so than saying like, you should tell the story in media or you should be forced to sort of like, you know, parade disaster porn around because I have a lot of complex feelings about the way that my story is constantly mined for like disaster porn instead of the point, which is that we deserved healthcare at the end of that. The point was that this story didn't need to be so sad. It needed to be a story that had a resolution. There was a policy solution to it that wasn't just American unity, but was about, you know, like specific changes we could make that could have made that story less tragic. I think more so like in terms of lobbying and in terms of asking like direct political action, the the way that you get put off early on is by being told that you don't have any data to back up your claims. And that you're generally part of a community that outside of the broadest possible data points about, you know, who has healthcare and who doesn't or whatever. You're generally, if you're, a- if you're, if you're asking the government for help, you're asking for targeted help for a specific program because they don't offer broad help. So like once you're at the point where you need something specific because there's like a specific crisis that is affecting a whole community then I think it's valuable to know that like being a good storyteller is all you need, that you don't need to be like a, um, you know, you, you don't need to be some sort of like an organizational savant. Um, but I, I think also the larger degree to which we ask people to parade horrifying stories around so that they can get piecemeal help instead of talking about broad policy solutions that don't require people to do this because obviously we all deserve healthcare. We shouldn't have to tell them. We shouldn't just deserve healthcare because we had cancer and I had a sad story about it. Like we, we should deserve healthcare because that should be part of living in a civilized society like that. I think I would see as a distinct kind of advocacy that, um, that is a burden that none of us deserve. I completely agree with you. Um, Yeah, on all points. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me when you reached out is you were talking about, you know, like, that this is an opportunity to have, you know, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you know, for people who are not the like, never forget, uh, patriotism, racist, Republican people, like, this is a chance to kind of to talk about why, uh, like, needing like, 
you know, piecemeal, like, oh, okay, you get help if this disaster hmm. happens to you. It actually, you know, it's not, that's not, like, particularly effective no. for, you know, disaster survivors. More efficient. Um, like, it's not even financially, like, it's not an efficient way to spend our, to spend taxpayer dollars. To Yeah, I mean, or for you to, you know, 20 years to later. To waste our time. <laughs> To still be, you know, on the same on the same thing. I mean, it's like, you know, this is all just if we just have a society where there's health care for everyone, this is disaster victims, survivors are they're They're good. They get that health care. Right. You know, um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot and sorry to be a little all over the place. <laughs> I, there's been a lot going through my head this week. And, you know, one thing is like. I OK, I hate polarization discourse i really hate like uh we've all gotten so polarized and you know talking about it like i'm thinking about you know uh the social dilemma for example um like obviously fucking huge tech corporations are are evil but i don't i don't feel that the problem is polarization i think that the left has the morally correct positions on most things and that the goal is not to meet in the middle, especially with, you know, racists um, and, you know, other uh, libertarians and stuff. But I do think that um, kind of apart from that, like, I think I'm kind of coming back to uh, back around to thinking that there is a value in people being able to like talk to each other, um, you know, from a civil and compassionate place, which makes me feel like something that, uh, I don't know. I, I just go back and forth on this one because obviously like, you know, civility arguments are just very used all the time to, to, you know, harm vulnerable people and the left and stuff. But, you know, I'm thinking specifically with this issue that you're working on, which is, um, help for nine 11 survivors that aren't just first responders that is going to resonate with a certain amount of conservative people. And you are very politically different from them. Like, you know, how do you navigate those conversations like where there is an opportunity to maybe break through? It's, it's something, you know, it's, it's a useful skill on this issue in particular, because also a lot of the guys that I had to walk around the hill with were Trumpers. You know, a lot of first responders were NYPD and were, you know, or were like iron workers and they came from, you know, communities that were fairly conservative. And a lot of and I have always had kind of like mixed feelings about having to participate in a discourse that was limited by the limits they wanted to impose on the conversation in order to get help for my community. Um, I think, though, I do say so. I am somebody who likes to talk about politics in every Lyft or Uber that I get into. I've been boycotting them recently because of Prop 22 in California. But before that, I used to talk Lyft and Uber. I talk politics in every Lyft and Uber. And I also have a perfect passenger score on both platforms. And I think that that is maybe an indication that I do have some sort of like ability to, to, you know, broach this, uh, to breach this divide. Um, And I think it was useful to work on this issue in particular uh, because I think it helped me develop that skill. I have spent a lot of time um, not just explaining to, you know, members of the media or members of the public or members of Congress that, you know, you shouldn't need to be a first responder to deserve the protections that first responders have because those protections are predicated on government misinformation. They're not predicated on who was and was not working at the site. Um, But I've also been able to use it to talk about 
why this issue that first responders often think is just about them um, is actually about all of us. And I think that, you know, I think it's been helpful to have to work out how to frame that for people who are used to seeing things in terms of deserving and not deserving assistance um, in order to kind of figure out how to talk about this issue to the rest of Americans. I think that the one I've, there's been a couple of tactics that I feel like have been really useful for doing this because I love making people admit that Medicare for all is a great idea after they've said something, you know, either that indicates that they are politically opposed to me, that indicates, you know, that they or that indicates something, you know, prejudice that indicates that they don't think everyone in society deserves the benefits that they deserve. Um, and the way I do it is always just by talking about myself where they will say something horrible and I will be like, okay, maybe that, maybe that happened to you. Um, but also as a 9-11 survivor, I have found that when I couldn't afford my healthcare after 9-11, that I, like I would be happy to pay more in taxes. I would be happy to do X, Y, and Z if I could have had X, Y, and Z things happen for myself. I would have seen personal benefit from them. And then I try to sort of draw out where they could have seen personal benefits from it. But I do it by starting with, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you have a story that um, where you can use the symbolism of 9-11 to talk about national unity in a different way than they're used to hearing, um, I think that's maybe part of it. But, you know, 9-11, I live in California now. And every time that I mention that I work on these issues to someone in California, they always ask me if my dad was a first responder. And then they tell me a story about a time that they were in like Kansas or wherever after 9-11 and felt the great national unity that swept over America. And I'm always the person that bursts their bubble and is like, oh, no, like, we're the forgotten people in the never forget rhetoric. You've now met one. They're real people. Um, and FYI, there are forgotten people in all never forget rhetoric. The people of Flint are forgotten people. Like basically every high school student in America is the forgotten people because they are also dealing with a huge health crisis. You know, mass violence is a public health crisis. Um, and we are doing nothing to resolve that. And they are the forgotten people. Like once you've started to meet the forget forgotten people, you can't feel safe from that designation anymore. You can't just rest in the idea that there's unity generated by these events that that protects all of us. And I think having that bubble burst is maybe like a useful way to discuss some of these other areas where policy solutions would be the answer and not just like warm and fuzzy feelings about being American. Um, but I think identifying, you know, where those which of those groups of, of forgotten people in whatever hashtag never forget rhetoric you've been, you know, exposed to um, exist and, you know, are tangible in people's lives um, is, is helpful. Because I think, you know, most people outside New York don't know that there's this whole community that got sick alongside first responders. And because of that, they are able to think about 9-11 as a moment of national identity that is entirely divorced from the tangible events of 9-11 and is all about you know, it, it's about people who died on the day. And I've been told again and again that I'm being disrespectful to them by advocating for people who got sick on the day. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't know who gets insane. to appoint themselves that, but everyone insane. seems to. Um, but I think also, you know, seeing seeing all of these supposed valid victims of 9-11 be men, seeing all of them be adults, seeing all of them be in uniform, sends, sends a message that there is nobody else um, you know, th that, that there is no one else who's deserving in the community, that there is no community. And I think, you know, having the ability to be like, no, like, 
this this event that you think of as like a life changing event that changed your whole conception of what life in America was and made you afraid and made you think about the world and you know whatever people think about nine eleven. Also, when you buy into the rhetoric that was set up around it, you are specifically forgetting me. You are specifically buying into rhetoric that forgets people. So, um, and, and that is true every time that you try to employ rhetoric like that. Every time you talk about national unity, you are almost always forgetting somebody. And the national unity conversation is specifically so that we won't have policy solutions, so that we'll replace our need for national action with like other warm and fuzzy feelings. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, like I'm thinking about how I, I, I'm, th- uh, I'm thinking about like just what sort of a um, I mean, with 9-11 in particular, really with everything. Uh, but, you know, there was just such an effort to sort of like redirect like any conversation about like what might have been useful policy or or even like deeper like like what are the causes of this oh do you think that maybe u.s imperialism and us like fucking bombing the shit out of people that you know weren't really trying to fuck with us before like could that have anything to do with this like um you know but there was there was just a very deliberate effort on the part of I was going to say Republicans, but, you know, it is it's everyone. The the imperialist consensus is, you know, it's it's Democrat, it's Republican. It's everyone except for like, you know, there's like a basically at that time in particular, there's, you know, like a few kooky leftists. And there were some really I mean, there was big protests. I don't mean to I don't mean to to like minimize the the amazing anti-war movement that, um, you know, that grew in in following 9-11. But you know, like I remember at that time, you know, like Janine Garofalo was like, hey, you know, 9-11 isn't like a good reason to start the Iraq war. And people are like, you can never work in Hollywood again. You know, I talked about this a lot in the book, actually. Sorry to interrupt you, but I my mixed feelings, not mixed feelings, but strong feelings, strong personal feelings about the way that war rhetoric um, sort of evolved directly out of these attacks that I had that I was still reeling from in very specific, tangible ways. Like I was still not breathing well. Like I was still sort of like unable to sleep at night. I was having dreams about planes hitting the Empire State Building. Like these, like there were tangible, specific issues that were still happening for me as the war rhetoric sort of, you know, came, uh, it sort of got drummed up. And one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the, the sort of crushing disappointment of having my own representatives vote for that war after they, you know, because they were charged with 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 representing the people of Manhattan. They they put the rubber stamp of the people of Lower Manhattan on those wars. I mean, in particular, um, you know, I, I've I've sort of never forgiven Hillary Clinton for that vote because she was representing me at that time. And I, you know, I know that she loves any war that she can sniff out. Like I'm, I, I was, I'm aware that that's like part of her political philosophy. But there was something so frustrating about having there there was there was just like a parade of insults that occurred for the people of lower manhattan after the attacks there was the fact that it got spun into war rhetoric where we went and caused the same trauma that i had just gone through to someone else's school in some other part of the world and that was done in my name that was done to protect me because i was the you know i was the new yorker that was that had that had witnessed the attacks the fact that they held the rnc in new york city in 2004 in an effort to specifically employ symbolism around new york city that was somehow absent of people because the entire city was protesting right outside madison square garden during you know the rnc um and i remember the rnc was crazy because my 
parents were like hosting like 20 people from like Rochester who were just using our apartment as a staging area so that they could just go to the protests. And so every time I walked in, there was like a new group of people from Rochester eating our food and just like hanging out on our couch as like, you know, we, we sort of like made the rounds because I grew up in Chelsea. So I grew up like in the middle of those protests, essentially. Um, but the the way that I felt used and the way that like in a personal way, the way that I felt frustrated by that rhetoric being a direct outgrowth of this experience where, you know, it's 20 years later and I still don't have, you know, all of my healthcare needs taken care of, but they somehow got that war rhetoric out like, you know, right away and used my representatives to rubber stamp it. I mean, that is something I hadn't really reflected on much until I started writing this book because it was something that I think I had tried to put out of my mind. There were like a lot of moments in the years following 9-11 that I think I had just tried to kind of forget um, because, you know, I thought like I, I, I don't think I realized how traumatized I was in college. I don't think I realized how, you know, college was difficult for me. And I always, you know, I thought maybe I chose the wrong college. I thought maybe I shouldn't have left the city. I, you know, I had a, a lot of theories about why college didn't work out for me. And I think in looking back, I was obviously like very traumatized. But so much of that was about the evolving rhetoric around 9-11 and the, uh, the, the way that it became a symbol of something destructive and completely different than, you know, what would have resolved the issues it had caused me uh, was just like, it was a lot to think about as I, as I reflected on that story. Yeah, it's, I, I can only imagine how infuriating that is, you know, just on, on so many levels. Um, I mean, you know, that I just I think that that like that time in general, I think really uh, altered a lot of people's political trajectory. I mean, like, you know, obviously, you know, not at the same like level as, as for you, of course. But I, I remember like I, I was very young also when, you know, like those the war protests were taking place and, you know, just kind of like spending so much time protesting and then you know, realizing, um, oh no, like these bombs are getting dropped anyway. Like that was a very, I don't know. It was both a politicizing and a like really depoliticizing event for me as a young person of like, oh wow. Like there can be like hundreds of thousands of us like gathered and they're just like, "Mm, who cares? You know? Yeah. Um, you know, the world has obviously really changed a lot and the discourse has really changed a lot um, in the time that you've been working on this issue. I mean, I, definitely in the Bush years, it was like anyone who was, you know, um, anti-war whatsoever was, you know, pretty maligned. Like there was a, yeah, um, you know, but now like I, I think that there are, you know, most young people are pretty, pretty anti-war and there's a lot of people who are learning more about anti-imperialism and, you know, there's a lot of Medicare for all supporters, I guess, you know, are you feeling like your task is, is getting easier in any way? I think definitely. I think, you know, part of the frustrating thing about the healthcare conversation in particular is that it doesn't touch you until it touches you. No one knows how complicated the healthcare system is until you have a specific complication with it. So for a lot of people who, you know, grew up in more expansive economies with more job security, who grew up at times where it wasn't quite as expensive to get healthcare, or who spent their younger years in complicated healthcare systems, but didn't have to use them because, you know, they were healthy and young at that time. Um, 
it's really complicated to explain to them why our healthcare system sucks so much. It's so like the 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 amount of minutia it takes to explain why it's problematic that that you know that in California in 20 you know, 11, I couldn't buy health insurance anywhere in the entire state because of pre-existing conditions. But that wasn't the law in New York State at the time. So it was only because I was in California that I got rejected from every health plan over my 9-11 conditions. In New York, if I had a 90-day gap in coverage, then they wouldn't cover my pre-existing conditions, but I could still buy health care. And it would be $500 a month for no good reason, even though I was young and healthy. Like, there are just so many, like, uh, minu- there's so much minutia to the health care law that people don't understand because they go out of their way not to engage in it. Um that for years, I feel like part of what was so complicated about explaining to people that the healthcare system needed to change was um, their their sort of own weird loyalty to it. I mean, I, I see this a lot, you know, specifically with people who are like fairly well off in LA who still reflect this line back to me of like, well, but I don't want to lose my health care. And so, of course, I can't support Medicare for all. And I have to be like, but in not supporting it, you're supporting a system where at minimum 10 million people do not have any health care. Like at minimum, at the best functioning version of the ACA, they were projecting that the blowout success would be that 10 million people would not have health care. Like you 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 can't just think about yourself and the healthcare conversation. You have to think about how systems work. But I think younger people have been so screwed on so many levels and the conversation around goals has gotten loftier, which is something that I, you know, I think to some extent I credit the Sanders campaign with, but I also credit Occupy with. I think people don't give enough credit, in my opinion, to the way that Occupy changed the way that all of us were able to pursue political trajectories that were um, better geared towards our skills as opposed to when I was a kid, you know, you just had to stuff envelopes at big anti-war organizations to be involved in anything. Like I got sent to so many dusty offices, like somewhere near Penn Station to like stuff envelopes for some organization or another. And I kept being like, I don't, I'm chatty. Like I should not be an envelope stuffer. Like I would, I, I'm like annoying everyone in here because I like won't, you know, I, I'll, I'm just talking all day because, and then then they put you in a room by yourself or whatever. Like I think Occupy kind of made it so that you know, people were able to be like, okay, what is my skill set? And how do I employ that skill set to make change as opposed to like, how do I, you know, how do I volunteer for like a giant organization, and they'll tell me what to do. And then I think, uh, you know, the conversation, the the Sanders campaign allowed us to name the goal instead of naming the strategy, which I think was helpful as well. And I think that the culmination of that has been that younger people have like an entirely different language around which to discuss a lot of these issues and also are comfortable with the idea which is not something people in the Clinton era and the Bush era were not comfortable with the idea of naming the goal. They did not believe in naming goals. They only wanted you to name really boring policies that would get you a halfway to the goal. And then they would also not mention that you usually took two steps back after employing whatever policy it was. You know, they. Yeah. And that, and that also just to add to that, that the stated that. Um, I, well, I don't know if this even makes sense, but I'm, I'm thinking of like, the you know, like even in even in things that like everyone, you know, like who's at all liberal takes for granted now that like, you know, LGBT people should be able to get married. Like, I feel like a lot of people don't know that like, not only, you know, was like the Obama campaign not supporting it, they were actively sabotaging it behind the scenes, working with, uh, you know, alleged LGBT rights organizations to actually have them, you know, convince their membership, oh, hey, we actually can't even be fighting for like, same sex marriage right now. You know, I don't know. That was the that was the strategy in every public sphere for so long. It was the strategy yeah. for my entire upbringing. It was the strategy for most of my 20s. And it's only been recently and really only since 2016, I think, that we've had 
the widespread ability to name the goal. And I recognize that there are still two camps inside the left. And one of them is still not very comfortable with naming the goal and thinks it's unrealistic to do. And the other is like, let's only name the goal and like not worry about it. And I get that like the two kind of have to coexist, but not being able to name your goal makes it so hard to talk about big structural changes, I guess, in the words of Liz Warren by accident. Um, But it, it, it makes it difficult to talk about major policy solutions because if you can't name the goal, you can only name minutia. You can only talk about the ACA. You can't talk about what it would mean to not have those 10 million people lack coverage. You know, you can only talk about what could we do with our current system to slightly alter it so that we could maybe have a few more people have coverage they can't actually afford to use. And that would be a huge achievement for us. And like, maybe that's what you do on the way to single payer healthcare. I don't know. But like, if you can't recognize that that's not the goal, then you don't even have the language to talk about what your what your actual priorities are. You don't have you don't have a way of having any moral framework around your politics. And I think we finally, you know, at least among younger voters, have the language and the framework to make some of these changes. So I've been feeling fairly optimistic on that front. I think, you know, there's there's a sort of populist strain on the right as well that's a little bit terrifying that, you know, comes, I think, part and parcel with this need for clarity that people on the left also are, you know, feeling. Um, and so I think that they're... There's, there's a little bit of a push-pull going on. I don't think that, you know, as I was feeling optimistic about the left during the Trump era, but I was not feeling optimistic about the country, obviously. Um, but I think this, this is a much, I think, first of all, young people right now are facing crises and disasters on every front. So they, when I talk about being a disaster victim, they understand what I'm talking about. They don't feel like, you know, this is some sort of like specific event that happened to 9-11 people that has nothing to do with them. Every, everyone in America is a disaster victim right now, but especially young people who've been dealing with this school rhetoric around mass violence, who've been dealing with, you know, fears about how they will afford healthcare, knowing that the system is as screwy as it is, you know, who've been dealing with environmental disasters coming around every corner, you know, who've been dealing with crisis on every front. So I think um, that that's been beneficial to the rhetoric. Obviously, the world's falling apart, so I don't know how great that is. Um, but I, I think that there's still this sort of, there's this roadblock in terms of like this this uh, outpost of not the left, but the kind of center left that still can't yeah. talk in those terms. And because of that is resistant to any conversation in those terms, even when it's something that is so objectively good. National health care is objectively good for everyone. It's not no one is hurt by it. It is only good. It is it only benefits all of us. It only makes our lives easier. It's it's a question of you know, how we do it and how we pay for it. And my opinion is that that's not actually my responsibility to figure out. That is why we employ people to figure these things out. That is why we have representatives that we pay salaries to with staffs who can do this research. Like, I don't think it should be my responsibility to explain how to pay for it. But there is this like sector of the middle left, the center left that like wants me to like have the plan too. And there's not comfortable with talking about ideas without the plan in place. And that I think is that is a bigger roadblock, I think, than this craziness that goes on on the right these days. I, I mean, it's I, I don't I don't know how I'd rank it, but it, it's definitely it's definitely the kind of the center left thing. It is there's there's a, a there's a craziness, and you know I've thought I've thought about this a lot because I've been the recipient of a lot of this fucking craziness online as someone who talked a lot about Medicare for all, um, but you know particularly like from a a perspective that like it was probably in some ways hard to argue against, you know, like, Hey, if we don't, if not everyone has healthcare, some people's loved ones are going to die. Like that's the thing that happened in my life. And turns out 
totally fucking blows, right? You know, but you I get people really mad about that, I think, because like particularly with some of these center-left people, it's very important to them to view themselves as compassionate people, like as, you know, as opposed to the right or like, oh, the right, you know, they're just, they don't want everyone to have health care. They're just a bunch of racists or whatever. I'm not even sure that, you know, I mean, that's a whole debate, whether like that's something that could be said or not. And I'm not going to get into that debate right now. But I do know that for like, you know, liberals, let's say, you know, your Pete Buttigieg voter, uh, maybe even your Biden voter, Elizabeth Warren fans, you know, like, like, ostensibly, like, those people are going to be like, yeah, I think everyone deserves health care. But then when you talk about like the mechanics of you know, like what that involves, like, okay, no, everyone, literally everyone, then those people start to get really mad because not only do they not support it, they have to like pretend to themselves that they do. Right. They, they, they're like infuriated by the idea, but they like can't admit to why they, but I think yeah. to some extent it's because, you know, far right populism takes a lot of really big statements and just like believes them wholeheartedly without worrying about the consequences of, of that belief. Like a lot of the time people in the far right are easier to talk to about Medicare for all than people in the center left, which is a dynamic that I have always found fascinating. It's why, you know, it's what I've learned in my travels as a Lyft and Uber passenger talking about politics is the the drivers that I've gotten who have been Trumpers have been way more receptive to my opinion on Medicare for all because they are more receptive to simply stated broad ideas than people in the center left. And so they maybe don't agree with me and maybe they do and maybe they just like have a wall up and maybe they don't. But a lot of the time it's easier to talk about goal ideas like moral framework ideas with other populists, even if those populists are embroiled in the worst kind of dangerous populism because they're willing to accept the idea that like broad policy solutions are a thing. Like they're willing to accept that the, that naming the goal is a political agenda is, is, is a, is a thing you can do, which is yeah. a fascinating I, dynamic. I, I, I agree, agree with you on all, all points, points except for, I think, I think that there's a, a, a big, big debate to be had about whether right wing populism is populism. Yeah, no, I agree yeah. with that. <laughs> I, I, no, I, in I terms of its, eff- its willingness to actually affect anything. Yeah, I mean, I have honestly, like in my travels as a comedian, occasionally had an easier time talking to people who are right wing than I have, you know, with liberals because, you know, like, I definitely think on the right there is, you know, like a... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. There's, you know, uh, I mean, for, for starters, like a willingness to to criticize the Democratic Party and to say like, hey, you know, like actually this Biden guy, uh, like I remember I was in Tennessee recently and I was talking about Biden with some people. They're like, he's actually like pretty racist. He said a lot of racist things and they were Republicans. And I was like, yes, I 100 percent agree with you. It's 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 a, it's terrible, you know, and I think that, you know. There's definitely a segment of the center left where like any criticism of the Democratic Party, like even including, you know, non-disputable things like, hey, Joe Biden's healthcare plan, not going to cover everyone. Like people get so fucking mad. And so I can empathize with your situation a lot because it's like, you know, you're like in a way you're an activist, you know, in in multiple communities where most people do not fully agree with you. And there are some people that are pretty mad about what you're saying. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely 9-11 in particular because it's almost like a it's a it's almost like a conservative um it's a conservative issue in in its own way, but is about healthcare, which I see as a progressive issue. Um, it it is is like the most confusing possible kind of health advocacy for someone who is like, you know, actually looking for a socialized system to find themselves in. Yeah, and it, you know, it's like we gotta wrap up here, but in a second. But it, it definitely is like, um, you know, it's 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 frustrating and counterproductive sometimes the ways that. Uh, you know, certain issues are just kind of like noted as being like a thing that like only people on the right or only people on the left can care about. I mean, the stupidest example of that recently is COVID. It's like, obviously, we should all uh, not be on the side of the virus. Okay. Like, you know, like none of us should be aligning ourselves with the agenda of COVID. But, you know, even other things, you know, healthcare free speech. I mean, that's a, that's a whole thing, but I mean, yeah. I mean, like, are there circumstances where like a leftist should be concerned, you know, that people are getting like fired for their jobs for saying shit? Yeah. Fucking totally. Because that's happened to a lot of socialists and communists and people fighting for racial justice. And, you know, so yes, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely with you. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, um, you know, have came on our show and, you know, kind of uh, certainly gave gave me some new to- ways of thinking about talking to people about like one more reason why we need Medicare for all. Yeah, I really hope that at this 9-11 anniversary that there is room to have a discussion about what it what it means to be a disaster victim and what we should be doing for disaster victims instead of just never forgetting one day, because I think that's a that's that's not a forward looking way to sort of use these these moments that you know this is an opportunity for us to reflect on what happened over the 20 years after 9/11 and i think a lot of the time people are hesitant to do that because it's been a chaotic 20 years <laughs> kind of a terrifying 20 years but um but i think we have to because the next 20 years is going to be the 20 years after covid and we're going to want to say that we did not make covid survivors wait 20 years for any sort of assistance from the federal government I, I completely agree with you. Um, all right. Lightning round of questions. Okay. John Stewart, cued in person. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Um, pre-order your book. When is that possible? Um, you can pre-order it now. It's on all the major online booksellers. You can do it at bookshop and then your local bookstore, I think gets a cut of it or something. Um, but it's, you can pre-order it starting immediately. Um, most, uh, annoying pundit that you've gotten to talk to in real life? Oh, Kimberly Guilfoyle. <laughs> oh my God. I have been on Fox News a lot of times because 9-11 is only ever discussed on Fox News. They Fox News will cover any aspect of the 9-11 story because they love to talk about uh, disaster porn so much. And so I have um, spoken to multiple Fox hosts. There are some shows, obviously, I won't go on on Fox, but um, there are some that I have. And Kimberly Guilfoyle is a an adventure of a person and also a crazy person. So I that that's nuts. I want to have you back on the show just to just to talk about it. For what it's worth, I I definitely think that there are times where leftists should be 
willing to go on right-wing platforms. If the idea that you're promoting is the left one. I will say the only major news network that covered survivor stories during any of the Zadroga Act iterations over the last 15 years was Fox News. I've never been on MSNBC and I've never been on CNN, but I have been on Fox News multiple times. They're the only network that's ever talked about the community outside of first responders. And I don't know why that is. And I've decided not to ask questions because it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it is a frustration. Well, you know, the motivations are probably not ones I'd agree with, but I'm still really glad that you're getting the message out about Medicare for all. And um, it's yeah, like, like I just was saying, please pre order Lila's book. And this has just been this has been awesome. Um, we're, We're so glad that you came on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Framgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They're always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.